nation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say than to Thanks for tuning in to the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We're your hosts, Brian Edwards, Nathan Cravat. I'm J.C. Grove. Special guest host with us today, Mark Ward. Phyllis, how are we doing today? Man, that was awesome. I, I love singing with you guys, but we have found a number four to our trio. How awesome was that, having a quartet? Yeah, when Mark said he could sing bass, i, I got to be honest, I had a moment of doubt. <laughs> but then you just you just proved yourself on the bass part. I heard J.D. Sumner sing live. I'm sure you guys can beat that, but... I heard him sing live. Yeah. That's yeah. impressive. I heard the cathedrals sing live. Who, uh, you guys can beat all of that. You traveled just, with them. Hey, wow. I do a podcast with a guy that sang with Gold City. Okay. So, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Brian Edwards writes songs. Yep, I did back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> See, me and Brian were national singers. Nate was just a regional. That, yeah, I was Bush League, you know. But I will tell you this. Nate has a song. <laughs> he said Bush League. Nate has a song that he sang that to date is probably still one of my favorite songs. I don't think I've ever told you that. You, really? you sang it the day I was baptized, that were it not for grace. Yeah. Man, I, I remember every time I hear that song, I'm just like, that's powerful right I there. I love that song. We need to do it one day on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that song. Man, that song Next is episode, check us out. Let's do it. <laughs> well, we are in week number two of a four-week series here with our friend Mark Ward. Nate, what are we talking about over these next four weeks? The King James and Modern Translations. That's right. And the last conversation was in-depth. It was enlightening. It was incredible. And uh, Mark, you shared a lot of things that taught me a lot about this subject. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, we appreciate you being here. You put in a lot of miles to get here, thousands of miles, and uh, made a lot of stops along the way and did some interviews. So we appreciate you being here today. And before we jump into today's episode, we want to thank our sponsor here at the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast. We want to thank Free Life Soap for being a sponsor of the Recovering Fundamentalist. Go to recoveringfundamentalist.org, click on the promo tab, Free Life Soap. Use your promo code RFP and get 20% off of your order. Mark, have you ever tried Free Life Soap? I never even thought about it until I listened to this podcast. Now I have carefully considered it. Yeah, you need to. It, it's life-changing. It's good stuff. Yeah, you'll become a believer. <laughs> Mark, we talked a little bit last week, and you introduced yourself to our audience. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your family? Uh, my lovely wife, Laura, is the proprietress of Blackburn Gardens, which is a micro-urban flower farm. Mm. If any, probably women out there have heard of Florette Farms, which is a world-famous flower farm. It is like right down the road and across the river from us. It's exactly even with us, like less than a mile away. 
and uh, my wife is doing something similar on a smaller scale in the backyard. I've got three homeschoolers, 11 years old, nine years old, and six years old, and we live in the beautiful state of Washington. We all serve at our church, Cornerstone Baptist Church of Anacortes, Washington. My wife has seminary training herself in biblical counseling and has been the best helper for me. She's my best critic when it comes to sermons. She's the one who's willing to say, you didn't preach the passage, you preached your favorite theologian. She's had to say that to me one time. Wow. <laughs> and she knew I would hear it. And uh, But I also can trust her. If she says the sermon was good, then I feel really good. Every time I get in the car after a sermon, you guys know how this is. I'm just oh, like yeah. waiting. I don't want to say, what did you think? <laughs> I'm just She'll waiting. tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then sometimes it's best if they live up to the Alison Krauss song. You say it best when you say nothing at all. <laughs> Just the smile on your face. <laughs> yes. That, my smile, did, did it just say, I have forgotten who Alison Krauss was. Union I'm that Station. much of a fundamentalist. Come on, country music. Yeah, well, sorry. Well, judging by what your wife does, and yeah. I cannot even repeat what you just said, <laughs> that you have to be the trendiest hipster I've ever met Truth. in my life. Oh, my goodness. Not to mention you're from Washington State. So, I mean, you've got to be a trendy hipster to live there, right? Uh, well, I work for Faith Life, Makers of Logos, and when I moved from Greenville, South Carolina, from Bob Jones University, or BJU Press, where I was a Bible textbook author for nine years, um, there was a definite shift in uh, male dress, let's just say that. There's much more of a feel of the lumberjack up there in the Pacific Northwest, and there's a lot more coffee. I finally had to learn how to like this stuff, and, I, and now I do. So Washington State introduced you to lumberjacks and coffee? Pretty much. That's the opposite of what guys in this region of redneckish life would think about Washington State. So I think there's going to be some guys who are going to have their minds blown. Yeah, that's the whole point of the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, right? Blowing minds everywhere for 54 episodes. Exactly. There it is. Yeah, that's what we've been doing. So let's blow some minds today as we jump into what the Bible says about Bible translations. And to start this episode off, we've got a very special video for you. Let's go. Now, I have to clarify something, and I want you to understand this. If you get nothing out of tonight, please nail this down. There are no original manuscripts today. You say, why is that a big deal? Well, what we have are known as extant manuscripts. You say, why is this such a big deal? I promise you, if you pastor... If you go into evangelism, if you're a missionary, you're going to come across somebody somewhere, somehow, someday, and they're going to either stand in the pulpit or they're going to argue with you and they're going to say this, well, see, there's a problem in your King James Bible and it should have been translated this way. Can I just say right off the bat here, and I know this is a rabbit as well, but that just smacks with pride. You're going to tell me that with your little Pensacola Christian College four-year degree or your, uh, you know, whatever it might be, wherever you have it from, you're going to stand up and just nullify and throw away 52 biblical language scholars, some of them that knew 15 languages fluently, that stood on their feet for seven solid years and translated the Word of God and checked and rechecked each other's work and compiled the greatest masterpiece that has ever been done on this entire planet. And you've got a little certificate from some Bible institute and you're going to tell me you know that they're wrong and the King James Bible ought to be corrected. That's, that is so prideful I can't even stand. 
understand it. It just literally makes me sick in the stomach. But that is where scholarship has taken our young men today. Instead of being under the Word of God, and listen, don't ever forget this, the moment you begin to correct the Word of God, it ceases to have the proper authority over your life to correct you. Amen? We are not over the Word of God. We are under the Word of God. So Mark, I see you typing away over there. What does the Bible say about what he just said? <laughs> well, sometimes it's hard to figure out what did he just say exactly? Because he started out talking about manuscripts, which is how we started our four-week series on the King James and modern translations. And of course, that's a natural place to start because before we can talk about translation, we have to talk about the text from which it's translated. But then he made a switch, what I call a conflation, you could call it a confusion between text and translation. He starts out saying that some people are going to correct the King James Bible based on what they call the original manuscripts or even the extant ones, which just means existing. Um, but then he, he says what they're going to say to you is the King James Bible should be translated differently. So he's mixing up those two issues. And then what he seems to be saying is that, I mean, he doesn't seem to have, this is something I hear all the time, he doesn't seem to have a category for someone who's worked hard to learn in school and has him or herself become a scholar who knows the kinds of things that the King James translators knew and can evaluate their work. So he's right to say, don't arrogantly think that after four years of any Bible college degree, you can criticize the work of the King James translators. I think that's true. That's a humility everybody ought to have, including him, and I'm glad he has it. But he needs to show the same humility towards scholars today who can read Hebrew and Greek, who've worked hard in the field of textual criticism and exegesis, who've written commentaries, and have come to the same kinds of genuine disagreements with the King James translators that they came to with the Bishop's Bible translators, whose work they were revising, and with Tyndall, whose work the, ultimately the Bishop's Bible translators were revising, unless God has told us, look out for the one good Bible translation. I'm going to set up a special set of scholars and give them the special guidance to do perfect work, then there has to come a point where that work can be revised by other suitably, likewise, scholarly and trained people. So one thing he does uh, that is commonly done is he elevates the translators of the King James Bible to a place that they didn't elevate themselves. Yes. And in the original preface, the translators of the King James Bible felt that translations should always be available in the vulgar yeah. tongue, which was yeah. their terminology. Um, so he has insight on the Bible that the translators themselves didn't have. He elevates the translators to a place that they didn't elevate themselves. And he's actually speaking against the translators because he's saying God's word stopped with this translation at this period of time. Yeah, that preface, you know, I, every time I read it, and I'm just about to write yet another article on it, and I've made abridgments of it. Um, I put out some videos, a video on my YouTube channel where I do this. I'm just so sad to read it because I think this is exactly the mainstream evangelical position on textual criticism and especially Bible translation. And if only my King James only brothers would read and agree with what the King James translators said, there would be no King James onlyism. They said, we are taking something that's good and we're refining it and burnishing it, you know, correcting some stilted phrasing, finding some places where we could possibly be a little bit more precise. 
why were they the very last people who are permitted to do that kind of work, especially considering that English has changed in the last 400 years? So coming out of that, what, what does the Bible say about Bible translations? I think this is really important to lay down because, you know, a common ground that we share with our King James-only brothers is we say the Bible is our authority. Now, how we define that is our ultimate authority and English translation? No, it's the Greek and the Hebrew, but the most responsible King James-only brothers will say the same thing. I think we should be able to agree that passages like the Great Commission demand Bible translation. How can you teach the nations, disciple them, to observe everything that Jesus has commanded without translating it into their language so they can actually read what Jesus commanded for themselves. I mean, I remember being in my King James Only Church in high school, and this is not my pastor's fault. This is my fault as a 14 or 15-year-old, and thinking, you know, I've probably read the entire Bible by now. I, I assume my pastor has covered the entire thing. He would be the very first person to say, no, I haven't. <laughs> I've covered, you know, barely a percentage of it. Even in those 15 years or whatever in church, I didn't hear all of it. In order to get the whole counsel of God, we've got to be able to read it in our language. And then there's another passage that I've, I've added in here to the discussion, and I've had this disputed quite often, but um, every dispute only drives me further into my trench, okay? I'm retrenching on 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is applying a principle to a situation that I don't think many of us face right now. The situation is the gift of tongues is operative in the church, and some people can't understand, because what is a tongue? It's a, a known human language that is unknown to the people, some of the people who are listening to it, okay? So what does he say? Well, you have to have a translator. Well, why? That's when he takes the principle that I think applies to Bible translation here. And what he says over and over again in various ways is edification requires intelligibility. How can you possibly build somebody up in their most holy faith if they can't understand what you're saying? If that's true on the 100% understandable level, how about the 50%? What if I, what if I, you know, every other sentence was Swedish? What would Paul say to me? Well, no, edification requires intelligibility in church, brother. Well, what if I have a strong tradition of I, I believe in a Bible translation that every other sentence is Swedish? I think you'd have to say the same thing. I think it does apply to Bible translation. Well, what if you're like Abraham arguing with God, you know, uh, um, before he destroys Sodom? You know, for 10 righteous in the city, will you save it for five righteous? If I go to Paul and I say, hey, Paul, you know, I'm an Anglican. And I'm not, by the way. Just don't, don't make a clip of that, okay? Um, I'm an Anglican, and in church, I heard this in real life. We say Jesu, not Jesus. Is that okay? I think Paul would say, well, I mean, what I said was people, in order to be edified, they have to understand. Do they understand that? Well, I'm not sure. It's a traditional thing that we always say. I think Paul would say, well, why? You know, edification and intelligibility, those are more important values than upholding tradition. What, what, what happens when we get to the place where a given Bible translation, let's say one that was made about 400 years ago, has, you know, five people in the city that we can't understand. There's this, not all of it is, un, you know, totally unintelligible, but a sufficient amount of it is, you know, these words are dead, we don't use them anymore, or as we'll talk about in the next episode, I think, you know, they're actually misleading. I think we have to use the Great Commission and 1 Corinthians 14 as Bible passages to, 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 that tell us we need to do Bible translation into the vernacular, the language that people actually speak. Well, you know, a lot of the arguments now that King James onlyists use are a lot of the same arguments that Catholics used 
which involved Erasmus, and I know that you could speak to that as well. That's something I've been wanting to dig into further, but for example, the one kind of deep foray I made into this was I read some, I believe it was 14th century, so we're talking the 1300s, uh, Roman Catholics in England who were pushing back against Wycliffe, who, whose uh, you know, first major English translation, which was actually of the Latin Vulgate, came out in about 1380. Um, and, the, and it really was striking to me how very similar the things they, they were saying are to, to what I hear. So for example, you know, I think one of the best of the King James only books out there is R.B. Ouellette's A More Sure Word. And when he hears me talk, you know, he, didn't, he wrote the book before he knew I existed, but he has read my book, I've been told. Um, when he hears me talk about the importance of putting the Bible into the language we actually speak, he'll say things like, he says in his book, the English language has degraded over time. And I hear Roman Catholic clerics in the 14th century saying, English is too barbarous to be able to place God's holy words into. Mm. There's, there's a difference, a big difference, between 100% unintelligible, like the Latin Vulgate was to the plowboy of, of William Tyndale's and John Wycliffe's day, and the way the King James is now. But still, even if we're at you know, 3% unintelligible, can, can we just get it down to zero? You know, do we have to have a Bible that has some traditional words in it we just have to hold on to? I think the Bible itself guides me to want to put the Bible into a language that people can fully understand. Well, you know, language is constantly evolving. Uh, for example, now if you preach to a congregation and there's younger people in the room and you tell them not to covet their neighbor's ass, they don't think about a donkey. Right. Uh, we no longer call an individual a bastard. We would call them illegitimate. Language has changed over time. And much of that language that was used previously is now offensive in today's culture. And some of the terminology is actually uncomfortable to read in a mixed congregation right. where there are both men and women. Yeah, so I want the Bible to be offensive where it's offensive. I have this great story I just love about a university professor in Texas assigning the Sermon on the Mount to her students and she thought, this is the Bible Belt, they'll at least show Jesus some respect. Well, they did not. One guy said, and I've got this memorized practically, he said, to look at a woman is to commit adultery. That is the most absurd inhuman statement I've ever heard. And when I read that, I like laughed with some pleasure because I thought, he's getting it. He gets it that Jesus says, you are wrong, buddy. <laughs> I want Jesus' offensive words to be offensive when they're supposed to be. I don't want the story of Balaam's donkey this is, this is what really happened. I don't really like telling this story, but there's a Christian counselor. He grew up next to an evangelical who's now an Old Testament scholar. But this young man was not in church at all, had never darkened the doors of a church, but he was buddies with this evangelical kid. When they graduated from high school, this would have been like, I don't know, early 70s, they had a big fight about their shared rock music collection. And what are we going to do with it? You know, we're going off to college. So the unsaved kid goes to a Christian college with the Christian kid in order to not break up their rock music collection. This is true. While he's there, he gets into the drug scene. He gets to the place where he's about to put a hit on a fellow drug dealer. I'm not making any of this up. You can look it up online. And he finally realizes, whoa, I'm in big. This is not cool. I need God. So who does he reach out to? His evangelical buddy, take me to church. His very first time ever in a church, he listens to the pastor talking about how 
Balaam's ass is talking to him. <laughs> and he thinks to himself, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Oh my goodness. And finally, the preacher, while when he wasn't reading the Bible text, you know, he's explaining it. He uses the word donkey. And he's like, oh, whew, that is so much better. Now, you, you, can, you can laugh and say that guy ought to know better English. His English is degraded. Or you can think the way I think the New Testament does. What language did God use when he inspired his word? We call it Koine Greek. What does Koine mean? It means common. It's what everybody spoke. Nobody says ass to mean donkey today unless you're being silly or you're singing an old Christmas carol. Is, the, is our goal to maintain a good tradition? The King James is a good tradition. Or is it to edify people by using intelligible words. And that argument seems to be a little bit out of step with the rest of the KJVO argument because it, it's kind of inserting intellectualism in. And since when did Jesus go after intellectuals only? When did he demand that people who he called, you know, come to me, learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you need to have, you know, so many degrees to do that. You need to be an intellectual. And you need to speak the highest, most sophisticated language there is. That's, that's just totally against who Jesus was. He went after the common man. And even beyond the common man, he went after the worst of the worst. People like Brian. <laughs> was, I would agree with that. <laughs> it, it, let, let's say a missionary comes to your church and he's translating the Bible for a certain tribe in Indonesia. This kind of thing really does happen. And in that tribe, there's a higher form of the language that really only the poets and the clerics in their you know, pagan religion understand. It's the traditional uh, language that people respect, but they don't speak it, they don't understand it. And the translator said, you know, we've decided to translate into that dialect, even though the people in the churches can't really understand it very well. Um, but that's the respectful form of the language. I think we'd all say, now, brother, we're thinking about supporting you, but that doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you do that? Well, try to put yourself in those shoes and look at your own culture, English, that way. Um, I don't think, I think that ought to apply to us as well, absolutely. You said in your book that we should use the vernacular when we translate. What, is, what does that mean? Um, the vernacular, sometimes what people mean by that is, you know, slang talk or, uh, you know, informal talk. But if you look it up in the dictionary, there are various definitions. And one of them is just the language you grew up speaking. And the, our language, every language has different registers. So a more educated person or somebody who's, you know, giving the nightly news, a news anchor, probably has a, a higher register. And, you know, you go to a scholarly conference and hear papers read, and they're going to be at a really high register. And you're on the sideline at a basketball game with your buddies, and that's going to be a lower register of English. But one, one thing all those registers share in common, and I think all three of them pretty much, with the possible exception of the scholarly, are, are in the Bible in various places. Certainly the poetic is there and the day-to-day uh, the -day is there. You've got laborers talking. The one thing that all those levels would have in common is that they are clearly the English of our time, not the English of another time. So the vernacular can stretch upward in register and lower in register, but it doesn't stretch backward or forward. The English that the Bible should be translated to into is the English of our time. Maybe, you know, the 50 years surrounding us, maybe the 100, you know, we can debate about that, but 400 is stretching it too far. 
Well, you know, a friend of mine, his name's Doug Bender. Um, he wrote the, uh, the I Am Second book. He went to uh, a tribe, and his mission was to translate the Bible into their language. He had to spend time with this tribe and learn that there were so many things that a westernized way of thinking didn't even relate to their life. There was so much that was in the Bible that didn't even relate to their life. And so what he had to learn was how they viewed the world, how, how they spoke, how they communicated certain things. For example, the trail that led to the well to get water became a very important part of being able to describe the gospel to them. The trail that you walk to get the water and the water gives you life. And he had to learn the vernacular of the tribe in order to help them understand the gospel. If you had a King James onlyist mentality, you would say, well, that tribe's just going to have to learn English or go to hell. Of course, that is the extreme. You know, the I tend to call it the Ruckmanite extreme. I'm not certain that's what Peter Ruckman himself said. I just don't remember. But I've definitely heard that before. Thankfully, in my from my perspective, that isn't the mainstream King James only view, although I certainly do encounter it. And I'd like to hear the mainstreamers push back against that more often. But even in the mainstream, that's really what they're saying to the people I love that I was the outreach pastor for. I was in a not so nice part of Greenville, South Carolina. I was a a very white individual, okay, preaching to a congregation that was not. And these are, these are people who had many skills that I do not have. The one lady whose cooking was just phenomenal. I've been in her house. But reading was not one of those skills. And I had homeless people in that area that I was trying to evangelize tell me, well, they would ask me, what kind of Bible do you use? And I'm like, why am I talking about this with a homeless person? So when, when I was in my outreach ministry, I said, forget this. We're not going to use even the New American Standard, which my church was using at the time. We used something called the New International Reader's Version. And when I would preach expositional sermons to functionally illiterate people of all races, by the way, um, it was so wonderful to not have to explain the English, but instead focus on explaining the Bible. When They would come to me, if they had the King James, this happened several times, and they would just be bewildered by it. Yeah, so, I, you know, the self-pronouncing King James that divides up every proper noun with hyphens into syllables and puts little marks on it to help you pronounce it. That was just utterly bewildering to them. Or this one lady came to me and said, if I have the... Uh, the gift of serving, why should I have to wait to use it? I'm like, what are you talking about? So we go to Romans 12. Romans 12 says, him that ministereth, let him wait on his ministering. She just totally misunderstood it. She's trying to read the Bible. This happened to me so often. I, I feel very passionate about using words people can understand. I taught hundreds of teen boys. Nearly none of them had dads. I taught them Proverbs 3, 21b through 23 in the NASB as I was required to. Um, Keep sound wisdom and discretion so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. Then you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. So I want my King James only brothers to know I'm an equal opportunity critic here. That was too difficult for them. Not a single one of them. I asked nearly every one of them, what does sound mean here? And they were like, oh, something that you hear? No, it's something that's solid. They didn't understand. Why bother teaching kids for, for whom this might be their only opportunity to hear God's words teaching them words that are traditional and, in, in, in a sense, accurate, but they can't understand them. 
I, I have this quote in the beginning of my book. I'll stop preaching in just a second. Um, Augustine said centuries ago, why insist on using a golden key? And he was a teacher of rhetoric. He was very eloquent. Why insist on using a golden key if it doesn't unlock the door of understanding? Why, why disdain to use a wooden one, you know, comparatively less uh, you know, eloquent, if it unlocks the lock, which is our whole goal here, getting people to understand? I fear that the King James-only movement, in its zeal, some of which is good, to have the words of God, has let that too often, not always, eclipse the more important value the Bible gives of understanding the Word of God. I think something that I've seen a lot of these guys do uh, that are KJV only is they will read from the King James Version, but then they have to translate in their words what they just read. And so in actuality, they're translating the King James into common language, even though they're saying this is what we need to follow. And I, I mean, I've sat in tons of services where I've heard that happen over and over again, where wouldn't it just be simpler to read a version that would translate to the audience that you're teaching to. Yeah, like, wh why is that okay, but these modern Bible translations right. here on the table are not okay? So what you're saying is, we can only trust the King James translators. They were the only ones who had the godliness and the skill, and they could speak 732 languages when they were, you know, still in diapers. And they invented diapers, actually, <laughs> back in the 17th century. And But nobody today is godly enough or smart enough to do it. Except for me, I'm about to do it for you right now, and they do it on the fly. Yeah. Why is that okay? Why not use the gifts of scholarship that Christ has given to his church, Ephesians 4, pastors and teachers, that he's still giving? He didn't stop in 1604 to 1611. We've still got them. I've met them. I can introduce you to them. They've taught us the Bible. They've taught us God's word through these modern versions. Take advantage of it. I can answer JC's question. Because as long as you read the King James, it doesn't matter what you say beyond that point. I had a pastor who invited me to come and preach, and he said to me, you know, we're still in this place where you need to use the King James, and so if you don't mind, would you do that tonight? I said, I don't mind. Will, will you let me borrow a copy of the King James? I didn't bring one with me. So he, he got me a copy of his King James Bible. I laid it out on the pulpit, and I decided that I was going to do something that night just to see what would happen. I read my text from the King James Bible, I pushed it over to the side. The rest of the scripture was copied and pasted into my notes from the ESV. I would read the ESV verses from my notes as if I was just paraphrasing a verse. After the service was over, he came to me and he thanked me for being willing to use the King James Bible. And I only read one verse from it and read from the rest uh, throughout the rest of the sermon from the ESV. It's it's symbolic. It's symbolism. It's tradition. That's all it is. We were in a church for a while where a King James only pastor would actually read the text and he would multiple times in the reading time would say, and what this means is, and my wife would point at the ESV almost word for word. He would read, and I know he wasn't trying to just quote the ESV, but he was adding an extra step as if that's okay, but translating it faithfully is not okay. So, so let's build on some common ground here. At least they're doing that. At least they're trying to go on and explain it, and usually doing a pretty good job. At least they're not like the Roman Catholic clergy of many centuries, withholding the Word of God completely from people. I feel like here's common ground we can build on. That impulse you have, you just know. 
those people there, that family there, that poor kid over there, they don't understand what I just read. I'm going to have to kind of paraphrase it for them. That's a good impulse. Build on it. And then use the gifts that Christ has given to his church that were actually placed there by him for you to do that kind of work. They're sitting right here, these, mm. these modern Bible translations. I think that's why so many missionaries go on the field and then lose the KJVO position because mm -hmm. they realize in real life it doesn't work. I mean, that's what Mike Peters said on his episode when we had him on. He said, we got to Spain and we were trying to preach King James Version only, and it wasn't translating to the people that were listening. And that's why even with the podcast that they're doing, Recovering Fundamentalist in Espanol, they've had to change the name of that because even the language doesn't match up with that. And, you know, I was convicted of this as a youth pastor, you know, 22 years old, standing and teaching from the King James and I'm reading a passage of scripture and then translating it to my students for what it needs to say. And I was like, is it timeless English or is it something that I'm going to have to reiterate and teach to them so they can understand? And I'm like, isn't there just some common ground that we could get to where we're going to teach the word of God and not just a three letters that are on a piece of leather? I think some of this too, JC, comes back to my mind from the Phil Kidd episode when, when he's using very offensive language to describe people. For example, and I don't even like to say the, the word, but he, he talked about a woman who is promiscuous as being a, and you can fill in the blank, certainly. And his, his justification of that was, I'm just preaching the word of God. What he's saying is the King James Bible is the word of God exclusively. Therefore, I have every right, instead of referring to someone who is promiscuous, which everyone in today's culture understands what that means, or referring to someone as homosexual, which everyone in our culture understands what that means. I think a lot of times falling on the argument of it's the Word of God and what the Word of God says is what I'm going to say, and they don't understand that the language over the time that we've been living since 1611 has changed. I think the thing that really struck me in what you just said is they will preach it when they read it, but they don't preach in that old English. They don't teach in that. They don't talk to each other yeah. in that language. So, Certainly not in the 1611. Right. I actually have a whole video, and I will use the word that you couldn't bring yourself to use. I had to steal myself to do this to talk about the bad words in the King James. I thought somebody has to have this conversation because the teenagers titter in the back when you use the word ass or you're talking about the word whore. So we have to ask this question. This is what I'm asking as a Bible translator-ish kind of guy, um, somebody who loves the Greek and the Hebrew. What does whore mean today? Well, you could say, what well, means prostitute? But there's something beyond that. We don't, we have whore and prostitute still in our language because Whore adds something else. It adds the purposeful insult, okay? And here's the question. When the Hebrew or the Greek used the word prostitute, did it, in all these contexts, intend to add that added element of meaning, of personal insult? Maybe, maybe not. In the judgment of most modern evangelical translators, no. So you got a passage like, a whore is a deep ditch, and a strange woman is a narrow pit, Proverbs 23. The modern translations go with prostitute. Why? Because 
I don't, their, their sense is that the Hebrew word doesn't have that added element of meaning. Was that element of meaning there back in 1611? Well, a prostitute's never been a good thing. <laughs> but I, my sense too, having looked at the history of this word is, well, no, it, it didn't used to have that small added element that makes us all stop. You know, if, if you're in church and you're preaching and you're telling a story about a previous ministry that you had and you're saying, you know, my wife reached out to a prostitute and gave her the gospel and she was gloriously saved. What if you said, my wife reached out to a whore and she accepted the, I mean, we all just recoil. Why? We all know our English. Our English has that element of added meaning, of personal insult. I don't think that was there in the Hebrew and I don't think it was there in 1611. I think it's been added over time. Um, that is very common with all kinds of offensive words we actually invent new ones because the old ones get so encrusted with insult that we don't want to use them anymore. It's called the euphemism treadmill. So the name for the bathroom has been restroom and washroom and water closet and all these things because when you invent a new word to describe it because you kind of feel awkward, awkward saying bathroom in polite company, well, then over time, that new word collects those you know, added pieces of insulting or demeaning meaning. Um, that's why we have to have new translations. That says nothing about the quality of the King James. It says that they translated the Bible into their English. Great, good for them. We don't speak that English anymore. We need the Bible in our English. I've heard it said that the KJV translators used timeless English, and that, that makes me ask the question and wonder what made the, the English language at its pinnacle in 1611? Um, that is a cultural judgment, right? An aesthetic judgment. So we associate Shakespeare and Spencer going a little back a little further and the King James Bible with the height of the English language for a lot of good reasons, right? Um, but does the Bible tell us to make sure to translate the Bible into the height of any given language? Or does it tell us edification requires intelligibility? You know, a lot of the King James only brothers and even some very responsible ones that I have a, uh, you know, there's, there's actually a reformed branch of King James onlyism that I think most of your listenership probably wouldn't have encountered very much. And they tend to say this, that, you know, the, the King James translators actually purposefully chose a timeless English that shows grandeur and, you know, majesty. And as a linguist, I'm just saying, Friend, there is no such thing as a timeless version of any language. Yeah. Language always changes. Who set it up this way? The only person I can know to point to is God. He divided the languages at Babel, and I'm not aware of a single language in the history of the world that hasn't slowly evolved over time. And sometimes, like English at certain points in its history, has evolved more quickly. I think we've had about four centuries of slow evolution. It's not been quick, but it's been enough that a bunch of problems of misunderstandings and of outright, you know, just blank lines, you know, the words that we just don't know have developed over time. There's no timeless English. So if I can ask this question, Acts chapter 12, verse 4, the word Easter appears in the KJV. Uh, the Greek root for that word is present 29 times in the New Testament. Every other time in the New Testament, it's translated uh, to be the word Passover. So why do you believe the KJV translators chose an obscure word like Easter in that passage? You know, I really feel bad about this. Um, you paid for my Chick-fil-A lunch, and here I come and fail you. I wrote an article about this, and I can't remember what I concluded about why they did this. 
I betcha my good friend Timothy Berg, whose website I highly recommend, kjbhistory.com, probably talks about this. Um, I think it's pretty obvious it shouldn't have been translated Easter. It should have been translated Passover. It's Pascha in the Greek. I'm not hung up on it. I know what the ultimate reference is, but I honestly can't remember why they did that. It's a great question. Is accuracy more important than readability? What is a translation of any kind? It's necessarily both of those things, right? If you translate something for the UN, I read a whole book that talked about UN translators. I love translation. And the people for whom it's translated say, we don't understand this, then you failed. Even if you say, but it's perfectly accurate. If they don't understand, then it isn't even a translation. Now, the only way that could work is if the source text you're translating from is totally unreadable. Then you can make an accurate translation that's unreadable. But unless we're going to say God inspired the Bible to be purposefully unreadable, then I have the right to expect that accuracy and readability are going to go together. In fact, if it's not readable, if, I, if, if people in my congregation with you know, middle class, high school educated people can't understand it all, uh, if there are vast tracts of it, they're just well, like bewildered, then it isn't accurate. What's the point of a translation? It's getting meaning across. If it doesn't get the meaning across, you can say till you're blue in the face that it's accurate, but the, the answer to that is staring at you right in the face. It's, it's all the blank faces of people in front of you who aren't understanding it. Accuracy and readability, can that's a false dichotomy. You can't split them. They have to stay together. What would you say to those who are saying you're trying to dumb down the Bible, though? Um, I, I Nearly, I'd say exactly the same thing. How dumb is the Bible? What's the smartness level? <laughs> is it 7th grade? Is it 10th grade? And I think the ESV translators, and I do preach from the ESV at my church, I think they said, we, feel, we think that the Bible was written to adults, so we're going to put this at an adult level. NIV translators, we think... It's good, it's useful to translate to a seventh grade level. I'm actually fine with either because the Bible doesn't actually say. Um, but here, here's my thing. Um, we're, to, to go for a modern version like the ESV is absolutely not to dumb the Bible down. I'd say the reverse, that to insist on the exclusive use of the King James is to add unnecessary difficulty to the reading. Difficulty not created by errors in the King James translators, not created by my stupidity, but created by the impersonal force of language change. So I, when I hear people say that, I also, I feel so defensive for the people that I served for five and a half years as, and much longer in other uh, roles in outreach ministry. And I just think, have you ever, you know, something that blows my mind, I really do admire the King James Only Church in my town. It seems to me like they're knocking on doors out there, and that's a good thing. I, I, you know, maybe that's not the best method anymore, but maybe at least they're giving the gospel. You know, it's too often Christians don't give it at all. But I think, how many people have you talked to? Have you looked at their face while you read or recite Romans 5.8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Have you actually asked anybody, do you understand what begotten means or whosoever or perish, John 3.16? Um, I would think that the most evangelistic among us would be the first to recognize, wow, people just aren't understanding this. And sometimes the men who preach don't understand it because 
I've actually heard text preached completely and totally incorrect based on an individual's understanding of the English wording in that text. And they preach the passage completely incorrectly because they try to decipher the meaning of the passage through the English words and they don't understand or know how to dig deeper. That's why we've got to put the Bible in the language of the people. That is not dumbing it down. It's putting it at the right level. All serious translators, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get the meaning across. Nobody, no serious translation actually used in churches is dumbing the Bible down. I would think that any time the gospel is communicated, true Christians would celebrate that. I mean, if you have read Scripture in your morning devotions or listen to a sermon or listen to the Bible app on the way to work and you got to work and you started sharing with a believer or a non-believer, preferably, and started sharing with them the gospel that what you read in Scripture meant to you, not in a way that you're changing the meaning and your interpretation is more important than the authorial intent. Obviously, that's always preeminent. But sharing in your own words, you're not retranslating the Bible, but sharing in your own words what you read that morning. And I think we all do that. If you read the Bible seriously or journal through Scripture, you're going to do that. And you share it. Obviously, it's in your own terminology, but the gospel is alive and Scripture is so powerful that even a kid can share what they learn from reading scripture or give a quick synopsis of what their preacher preached on Sunday and someone can get saved and come to Christ through that. As a matter of fact, most people get saved through someone sharing their salvation story. Man, I was at the rock bottom point in my life. My marriage was falling apart. I was exposed as a fake. I, all the things that I'd put my hope and faith and trust in, all the idols in my life collapsed around me. I realized my need of a Savior. And by the way, this is my true testimony. I realized my need of a Savior. And I called on Christ. And man, He saved me. He rescued me. Did I use any scripture there? No. But I used a lot of texts through my story, through my experience and the theology that comes from that scripture, share that with someone. I've led people to the Lord just sharing my story. Most of the time, I put Bible verses in there, John 3.16 or you know Romans 5.8 or, or whatever. But I would think anytime we share the gospel, we could celebrate that. Well, one of my proudest in the right sense moments as a dad, and I don't feel like I have a lot to be proud of. You know, Parenting is really hard. I love my children, but the challenges come at you, you guys all know. Um, was when my littlest child, who's now six, I was teaching them a catechism, which is just teaching them little summaries of Bible doctrine, of course. And they were uh, very biblical, really love, wonderful stuff. And he totally botched the wording, but he got the meaning right. And I, I can't re reproduce the example, but I was so happy. Did I correct him with a superstitious connection to the exact wording of the catechism? No, I wanted him to get the meaning. That's, and that's the point of good Bible translation. Mark, you used the word superstitious. I think that's, that's kind of getting to the heart of the KJVO position, is that they want something magical. I've discussed with a good friend of mine, Ronnie Brown, about Gnosticism and the part that plays in this. He and I are actually planning a future episode around that because it's almost like you need this higher knowledge. 
this, this Gnostic knowledge that no one else has this truth. And man, I went to churches growing up of 25, 30 people. I mean, after 40, 50 years, they had grown to 25 people. And they were so proud and arrogant that they were the only church in that town that had it right. And by the way, they weren't the only IFB church in that town. But there was such an arrogance that we've got this higher knowledge and it's this superstitious, like magical Bible that floats up. And I think you're touching on something there that goes to the heart of this issue. And Mark, before you answer that question, if you can include this in that as well, Nathan, I've had people say to me recently that they went to an IFB church for years, heard scripture preached out of context, couldn't look into the verse and reconcile what they were seeing with what the pastor was saying, and they assumed that he had spiritual insight into God's word and special revelation that they didn't have because that's what they were being led to believe. So I agree with that question. Boy, yeah, I, I always want to represent my debate opponents, especially if they're Christians, with the most charitable interpretation possible. So I'm looking for the most responsible voices, and they're not doing those things. But let's observe, we've all seen that countless times, people treating the Bible superstitiously. Do the leaders of the King James Only movement actually say that's what you should do? No, they, they don't. I, I've never heard D.A. Waite or even, well, I won't say Peter Ruckman. I stopped listening to him a long, long time ago, but I haven't heard them say you should do that. Why is it happening? Um, it does seem to me that the King James, for too many people in the movement, is a sociological totem that they hold up. It's a banner that they wave. And listen, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can, but look at the actual division that has occurred. Here's where my fundamentalist comes out. I got to have backbone and call out sin for what it is. What does Galatians 5 say? When in Galatians 5, you've got this list of the works of the flesh, and we're all familiar with uh, the stuff about sex. It says that the works of the flesh include sexual immorality. I'm reading the ESV here so we can understand it all. Impurity, sensuality. Um, it talks about uh, orgies. Wow, this is intense stuff. We're all used to and we agree with our King James only brothers, all sin outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage is wrong. Um, but look what else it says, at least five times as I count it. Look at these other works of the flesh. Enmity, strife, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Has that not been the fruit of King James onlyism? among the largest number of its adherents. Are the people who are at the top, who are more responsible, are they doing this? Not always, they, they can be gracious and charitable. R.B. Willett in the beginning of his book says that good Christian men can disagree about these issues I'm about to talk about. But at the level of the people who actually inherit the teaching in the churches, what happens? This is what happens. I, and this is emblematic for me. My best friend, one of the most brilliant people I've ever known, godly, humble, lived, lived with him for four years in grad school, he just had his first child. Um, he went from an evangelical church to a fundamentalist Christian school, had no connection with the IFB until he went to that school. And he brought his um, NIV with him. Why wouldn't he? It's a Christian school. You come from church and you bring your, your Bible to, to school. He, was, he set it down on the ground. He, uh, he went to his locker to you know, put some stuff in there. He turns around. Next thing he knows, there's a kid jumping up and down on his Bible. He's like, 
what are you doing? You're jumping up and down on my Bible. And the boy said, this isn't a Bible, it's an NIV. Oh, man. Where does that come from? Dissension, division, strife. One of the reasons that my King James only brothers should know this isn't right, my brothers and sisters, is the division this has created between you and your real life brother that you know loves the Lord, okay? You know he guides his children to follow the Lord, and yet he uses this different Bible. You need to listen to that fact in your heart, in your conscience telling you, maybe I shouldn't be so nasty about this. Maybe we, maybe what Jesus said about unity in John 17, he actually meant that, that to, sin, to separate when the Bible doesn't actually teach this doctrine is to sin. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark, that there are some extremists, and we've all encountered those, but there are also guys that are seriously wrestling with this issue. Yeah. I've mentioned that I, I went into a five- or six-year like in-depth study of this issue and went through New Age translations, Gail Ripplinger, to uh, King James Only tra- Controversy by James White and a lot of other books in between. Uh, John MacArthur's article that you can find on his website, helped me probably more than anything. It just kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just distilled. Kind of, yeah, it just kind of distilled everything for me into this is what I've been looking for. But here's the interesting thing. I went into this study wanting to prove the KJV-only position. Even though I wasn't really there, I, I, I felt guilty about it. My conscience was bound, and I wanted to end up being able to prove the KJV only. And I prayed and said, Lord, I'm willing to devote the rest of my life to this issue. It was that serious for me. So I know that there are guys out there that are serious, that are wrestling with this. And I don't want to make everybody that listens to this exactly like me, but I do want them to honor God's word. And if they're holding on to an idol, not necessarily saying the King James Version is an idol. It doesn't have to be. It's not in and of itself. It's a great version. And it's been used greatly. I agree with them on that. But your viewpoint on something can definitely become an idol. And if you need to back off of that, something that dishonors God while you're trying to honor him, I I think that's something that we really need to think about. And I don't want to lump everybody in together. We've done that before on this podcast, and they do it about us all the time. I mean, (laughs) names like Trendy and Hipsters and all, all this other stuff, skinny jean wearing, all that stuff. I don't want to lump them all together because I know there there are wide differences in that. But thank you for pointing that out. But do they all have in common that they're taking a non-biblical issue and making it an issue? And isn't that an issue? Yeah. Now, maybe we can wrap it up with the story I told you at Starbucks this morning, Nathan, yeah. that I, I did a documentary, an infotainment documentary called Authorized. 45 minutes. I encourage people to, to watch it. You can watch it for, with a free trial to Faith Life TV. Uh, and I ended it with a story that comes from my life, and I'm embarrassed to have to tell the whole world about it. I was a counselor at the Wilds. We used only the King James, of course. Got to got to put that in there. I had a good experience. I I liked. I especially loved the the full time staff. Really godly, gracious people. But um, I had a camper who was just in your face, rebellious. He was 16 and at, bigger than me by a little bit. I was 18. He didn't know that I was only just a little bit older than him. I never told him either. And we were just, you know, at odds the entire week. Well, I happened to be on the blue team, and we lost every single week. And I was feeling pretty bad about this toward the end of the summer. And he could sense this. And in his 
skilled rebellion, he realized, I can really get my counselor good. I'm going to wear a red shirt to final scoring. So he threatened to do that. And I was like, you better not. I'm going to rip that thing off your body, which is not a good thing for a counselor to say. So sure enough, he comes in in a red shirt and with a red pin on his chest. And I've been stewing about this the whole time. And when, as soon as he came in, I wrestled him to the ground and I ripped that button off of his shirt. And I'll never forget the, the female counselor like breaking it up and then like the look of shock on her face when she realized one of these fighters is a counselor. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ran out the back and I talked to a guy, another older counselor, got some counsel. He's like, you know, just go back in there and play it off like this was a joke. So I was like, okay, okay. So I went down and sat next to him. And this kid, this rebellious kid had been in my face the whole week. He turns to me and he says, Mr. Mark, you took it too far. Mm. And I was able to apologize to him and say, you know what, let's go talk. You're absolutely right. I sinned against you. Please forgive me. I ended my documentary with that scene. I reenacted it. I, I wrestled this kid in real life for the, for the scene. And the reason I did that is I'm like, you know, it's one thing to love your team. Actually, I do love the IFB. I had a lot of good experiences. Yeah. I'm still an independent Baptist. I'm in a Reformed Baptist church, but still independent and Baptist. I still have many friends in that world that I greatly respect, okay? I'm not here to destroy them all. But um, on the, that King James-only side, I'm going to say, you know, it's good to love your team, good to love your traditional Bible translation. I love it too. I actually love it more now than when I started this work. But you took it too far. You made it a doctrine. Yeah. It's in your doctrinal statement. You're dividing from countless other Christians who believe 98% of the same stuff you do yeah. over something the Bible does not teach. Brothers, it's I who should be separating from you because you are persisting and holding on to this sin. But I don't want that. I want unity with you. If you will repent from teaching a doctrine, a divisive one that the Bible doesn't teach, then I will happily be reunited with you in Christian fellowship. That that's my heart toward all this and maybe a good place to end on. I think that's a great place to end right now. We're going to pick it up next week. We're going to talk about dead words and false friends in the KJV. It's going to be good for week number three. Mark, thanks for being here again with us. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. And Nathan is excited. I am excited as always, but a little bit more right now. And guys, I've got to give a huge shout out to my good friend Hunter Strength, which actually I met him in this very room, sitting right there at a table at one of the pastor's conferences. This guy walks in with a Florida State hat on, sits across from me, so we're immediate friends. But Hunter Strength is the one that ultimately gave me, recommended the book, gave me your name, and he's the one that got asked you if he could get your number to me, and I contacted you, and that's how we ended up here. So Hunter Strength, thank you very much for making this happen, buddy. You could almost say it was predestined to happen. <laughs> Without a doubt. On that note, be sure to go to recoveringfundamentalist.org. Click on the free life soap tab. Use your promo code RFP. Get 40% off of, whoa, we just gave them a big discount <laughs> right there. 40% is where they can get your book, right? RFP authorized at logos.com. RFP authorized. You can get a 40% discount. And that's good till May 1st. Yes. Go there. Check it out. Guys, I can't wait till next week. Y'all have a good week. Be sweet. Thanks, John Galvin. Peace.
Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.